Actually, I teach Pilates courses several hours oh, a yeah. day. I think he actually yeah. teaches courses about pilot, but uh... pilot <laughs> and not Pilates. Pilates. There was it. Somebody in it is about pilot. Somebody in a reading Pilates. at mass uh, a oh. few years ago got up there and it was said pil- pilots uh, like apostrophe s in the in the lectionary, but they said Pilates. They did. So. <laughs> yes, they did. Here's the thing I've always got on my mind. Yeah, can can, can you imagine Pontius if Pilates is yeah. a bad guy? Here's the thing I always have in my mind. Can you imagine if you were actually named in the Nicene Creed? Like <laughs> the know, only dude that's God, named. Yeah, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the evil Kenny Burchard. And Pontius you know, like Pilate. Right, yeah, right in the creed forever. It's amazing to think about it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Welcome to another tearful and perhaps even fearful episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach at the Coming Home Network. Ken Hensley is Director of Pastoral Care at the Coming Home Network. Kenny Burchard is Director of Development at the Coming Home Network. We were all evangelicals of one stripe or another. We all ended up Catholic. We've explained that to varying degrees in various forums, but... Uh, looking forward to getting more into this series on the Mass because we all were used to worshiping in very, very different ways uh, as Christians in our various environments before we became Catholic. Ken and Kenny, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Beautiful day. All Wonderful right. day. Beautiful day here in sunny Virginia. Well, I hope that when this airs, it's still sunny Virginia. Who knows? It may be a blizzard. It's, sun- but it's sunny in Southern California. It's like 75 it's, degrees outside. It's not going to change for Hensley. Um, it's going to be the same pretty much no matter when this airs. Of course, you can view all previous episodes to see where we are now after several episodes here on The Mass by going to chnetwork.org uh, to get caught up on things. Uh, while you're there, by the way, you can go to our online community, uh, community.chnetwork.org. And since we're coming up on the end of the year, uh, very important time for us, uh, trying to make sure we get all the bills paid before we flip the calendar over. And if you uh, appreciate what you've been watching and it's been helpful to you or you want to help others who are wrestling with these questions, go to chnetwork.org slash donate. Any gift is more than welcome. All right, so to catch things up to where we are, now that we are several episodes in, five episodes in, and we're only halfway through a one-hour church service, uh, Kenny, where are we at this point? Well, we're turning our attention now. Uh, as you said, Matt, we're, we're halfway through the Mass uh, in our discussion, and so we're at turning our attention now to the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, In the the liturgy of the Eucharist, which according to the plain teaching of the Bible, if I can use some language from my my days as Pastor Kenny, according to the plain teaching of the Bible, and as we'll see at the end today, according to the understanding held by the earliest Christians, ordinary bread and ordinary wine become the body and blood of Christ. And so in this part of the Mass, quoting directly from Jesus in John 6, this is where in the Mass we eat his flesh and drink his blood because Jesus said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. 
And so at this point in the Mass, because this is what we believe is happening, we need to take it carefully and slowly because there's a lot of theology to unpack here. And there are a lot, frankly, of, of misunderstandings that hopefully we'll be able to, to clear up. But we at least want to begin today uh, by turning our attention to how we celebrate the Eucharist at Mass. And just to re remind people who haven't uh, maybe watched previous episodes and series, we've done a whole big series on what the Eucharist is and why we believe all that. This is really situating that belief in the context of worship. So um, this is probably a good point to talk about how communion functioned in our previous understandings <clears throat> of, of Christian worship. So um, to, to express how I perceive communion— uh, first of all, I don't think I would have said receive communion as an evangelical. I would have said take communion, uh, which is sort of an interesting different verb that I only kind of noticed the difference of <laughs> when I started becoming Catholic. Uh, but I had it in just about every way you can imagine, uh, although we didn't have it that often uh, in my free Methodist, Nazarene, various evangelical contexts. Um, there were uh, times and spaces where we had communion quarterly and potlucks monthly, right? One of those kind of worlds. Um, there were times when they passed the tray with like the 80 <laughs> cup holders down and everybody takes a cup. And then there's always kind of a confusion, like, do I take it now or do I wait till everybody gets in the row and takes it? Or do we hold it to the end and everybody takes it at the same time? You know, you get some of those awkwardnesses. And little chiclet crackers, like oyster crackers. Uh, but I also was mm -hmm. at music festivals, and I've talked about this before, where you had a self-contained cup with a layer of foil um, then a cracker and then a saran wrap over top of that. And, and you could, you could take it that way. I've been at places where you'd have a loaf of bread and a thing of Welch's and you'd pass around the bread. Everybody tears off a hunk. And maybe you've been at some of those. Uh, and I, even at the very end, when I was in part of uh, what eventually became to be called a house church, uh, there was like this open communion thing where, um, the custom, and this is with people who were mm -hmm. uh, mostly in the restoration movement that I was hanging out with at the time, they'd set the, the, uh, bread and, a cup on the table and we just play some songs and have some quiet time and people went up as they felt led to participate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But in any of those cases, it was just a memory, right? It's a memorial. It's remembering uh, the good things that Jesus has done. I don't think we ever really knew why this was the thing we did to commemorate him uh, other than the fact that he said so. So uh, that was me. Well, um, um, if I can leap in here, I would say something similar uh, because the Christianity that I had known from the very beginning of my life with Christ was what I would refer to as your standard garden variety evangelical Christianity. From the time I first went into church, I was taught that the Lord's Supper was a simple meal by which we use the symbols of bread and wine. Actually, well, just grape juice, as you said. We use mm -hmm. these symbols to commemorate the death of Jesus on our behalf. And it was really that simple. Jesus had said, do this in remembrance of me in the Gospels. St. Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in the thinking, really, of essentially every Christian I knew, I don't think I knew anybody who didn't agree with this, this was the sum of it. This was basically what the Lord's Supper was. It was a time of remembrance. It was a time of calling to mind what our Lord had suffered for us. It was a time of giving thanks to him. It was a time of recommitting our lives to him. It was a time of pondering the meaning of his death, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, as St. Paul says. And so, turn it around the other way. There was this no conception in my mind, or really in the minds of anyone I knew at the time, 
that the Lord's Supper was more than that. Certainly, there was no conception, no idea at all that somehow a, a miracle of some sort was taking place where the elements of bread and grape juice were changed into something else. And never that we were receiving the body and blood of Christ. I never thought like that at all. And so with this in mind, I don't think we had, I had nearly as many variations as you mentioned, Matt, but we celebrated the Lord's Supper in the church that I pastored um, the last eight years of my ministry uh, once a month. Uh, we wanted it to be special, and therefore we didn't want to wear it out by doing it too often. You know, we wanted it to be a special occasion when we did it. Um, another thread or another idea is that we did not believe that a pastor was required, uh, certainly not a priest. Priests didn't even exist. We didn't believe that a pastor was required to lead in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Theoretically, in fact, the Lord's Supper was something that friends could just do at home, I suppose, if they wanted to. And I know that there were youth camps um, that I heard about and youth camps that I attended where high schoolers would lead and celebrate and pass out the elements um, using whatever was available. I even heard one time of um, potato chips and Coca-Cola being used as the elements at a youth camp. And while I will admit, it made me feel kind of creepy, you know, when I heard it, I, but I think it was more like, I just felt like this isn't reverent. This is, there, there was something wrong with it. But when I think about it, I wasn't sure that it was somehow invalid. You know, after all, it's just symbols and it's being used to remember. So why not do it any way you want? Why not? Well, that word invalid would have had absolutely no meaning for us in that world, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. I mean, you mean yeah. valid. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. we might have yeah. said reverent or irreverent, but I don't think valid was part of the conversation at all yeah. for any of us. No, uh, was no. it for you, Kenny? Um, not really. I mean, I think I would have looked down my nose at somebody who used Coke and potato chips. And I will say that I heard all kinds of stories like that uh, from pastors. I heard mm -hmm. pastors say, you know, use whatever you want uh, or whatever you have so that there was definitely a diminishment of uh, of the the matter used in mm -hmm. communion services it did it didn't matter <laughs> what matter was used uh and i think like you can uh you know one of the theological convictions that i had regarding the lord's supper and maybe it was a ritual conviction if you want to call it that was that there was this danger in celebrating communion too frequently um so we we were just afraid if you did anything too often that you would just necessarily turn it into a dead ritual like the Catholics. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we only had communion once a month. And remember, I was pastoring a lot of ex-Catholics and they would tell me how much they appreciated the fact that we that we didn't celebrate it every week, uh, that we waited so that mm -hmm. it would be more special, you know, to do it once a month. So it's, I think if I think if we were to find evangelical Christians and pastors and ask them about the infrequency of communion, they would point to that, well, that just keeps it special. Uh, we don't want to lapse into ritual. I had that conviction. Uh, as far as the elements themselves, the matter of communion, the bread and grape juice, we never used wine ever. Uh, uh, those, I would say, always remained bread and grape juice. There was, in, in our theology, there was no substantive or, you might say, ontological or material change in them in any way. Uh, thus, they, they were always, quote-unquote, just symbols. Um, they were to be eaten and drunk as a symbolic memorial meal uh, of the Last Supper. 
in which Jesus' sacrifice mm-hmm. for us was remembered for our sins on the cross. Um, and, and I would say, <laughs> I'm being a little retrospective here, um, and I don't, I, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea about me or, or our church or anything when I say this. This may actually be common in other Protestant or evangelical churches like ours, but I will say that there was an implicit theological practice in our um, in what we did with communion when it was over. Stick with me on this one. After our communion services, we would dump the unused grape juice down the drain uh, of the of the sink, the, the sink in the church, and we would take any uneaten bread that was used in communion and throw it in the trash can. <laughs> At our church, we did that. And I say that there's an implicit theological statement being made there when I say that's what we did with it. When you throw the bread in the trash can and when you rinse the juice down the drain, you are making a theological statement. And the statement is something like, this is only a symbol, that there's nothing special about what's happened to this bread or this, in our case, grape juice, in what we have just done. As far as how we celebrated communion, I think it would be just like you guys experienced. Uh, someone would read a scripture. It would often be something out of one of the Gospels or First Corinthians. We would pass cups around in the little trays, Matt, that you mentioned, a little bit of bread to each person in their seat. Um, someone would share a communion devotional. It didn't have to be a priest. It could be anybody in the church. Someone would pray before each of the elements was consumed, and then we would pass everything to the aisles, collect it, and dispose of it. And that would be the end of it. We would sing a song and close with a prayer, and that would be communion in one of our churches. All right, quick questions for both of y'all. Um, and then one really interesting experience related to you know disposing of the, the elements. So quick question is, when you had Communion Sunday, did you preach shorter? Yes. Okay, you did. Because it took more, for me, for me I did because it took more time, you know, in the service to get through the right, the, you know, not the right, mm-hmm. but the celebration. And there was another person doing a devotional, so it just ate up more time. So yeah. Yeah, same here. I was probably, you know, I was aware of the fact that that was going to add to the length of the service. So, yes. I That wasn't always the case in every place that I was. Sometimes we were like, ah, oh, it's communion Sunday. Come on. This is going to be, this well, is going to be, it's going to be longer today. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, I remember there are like a lot legitimately of having there are a lot of pastors. Though. So there are a lot of pastors that just go on and on and they don't care, you know, so. Yeah. But no, I mean, that's, sure. I, I say all that to say, like, there was sometimes a dread of, of Communion Sunday mm-hmm. um, in, in my world, at least as a kid, uh, because of mm-hmm. because of that. Uh, the other thing is that, did you guys have pews in your church that had, like, cup holders where you could put the empties? Mm-hmm. Did you have those? Yes. Kenny has no well, idea we what never I'm had, about. No, I, I do know, but we never had those in our, in our churches because we used chairs. Oh, yeah, not, that hooked into the side pews. of each other. So, yeah, so, I keep forgetting you so, got yeah. you're Pentecostals, man. You got to have stuff that you can clear out of the way if you have to. So believe it. Um, we had those, what, and we passed the tray down. We passed the tray down the aisle. In fact, one time when my family was on vacation, when my daughter was very young, they passed the tray filled with those little plastic cups of Welch's grape juice in a church in New Orleans, and she dumped it. 
she dumped the tray on the ground. And so we're talking about disposing of the elements, you know. What we got was, oh, it's fine, it's fine. Just laugh it off and clean it up, I guess. But anyway, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, the only other thing I was going to say is from my interactions with Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who occasionally visit me once and then they cross me off their list forever. Um, we were talking about this because they often come around uh, right around the time that they celebrate the one thing that they celebrate a year is Jehovah's Witnesses because Jesus only commanded us to celebrate one thing, according to them, according to Jehovah's mm-hmm. Witnesses, and that is the commemoration of his, of you know, once a year supper once a year that's the one thing they do and they um say the words and they pass it around and you can only partake of the bread and the wine or the bread and the juice if you are one of the one hundred and forty four thousand. well i don't know how you verify that um other than to say Mm. that i asked these guys it's like you ever seen anybody take it they're like yeah there's just one lady you know from this town she only shows up once a year and she comes and receives communion and i'm like you know you ever like quiz her like how she knows And, and uh like, no, we just trust uh, trust that she knows what she's doing. I was like, all right, so 144,000 are the only people allowed to take this, and it's only once a year, and it's the only thing you celebrate. Well, what do you do with the leftovers? Right? And, and they're like, well, I just toss them? Like, I don't know. I'm like, well, then this is a strange right. – but, but again, it goes back to something that's that was strange for all of us. It's like we knew this was supposed to be done. We knew that we were supposed to be serious about it, but we didn't all, like, know exactly how to put it uh, in the context right. of everything else. So – uh, so true. So so how did that begin to change then for you, Kenny? Well, I started to change my mind about this, uh, about what was possible at least. And I can even name the year, 1995. I was on staff uh, at an Assemblies of God church, interestingly. Um, and our pastor asked a guest speaker to come and talk to us. He happened to be a charismatic Episcopal priest, actually a bishop, in the charismatic Episcopal Church, and he came for a weekend of teaching. And when he was with us, he taught this three-part series on sacraments and symbols. And honestly, it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone do anything different with communion than what you and I, you know, we just all three of us went through. It was very much outside of a typical Pentecostal perspective. And he kept poking on this phrase that you would hear in our circles. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. He's like, no, it's not just a symbol. He said, why are you saying it's just a symbol when the Bible never even says it is a symbol, let alone just a symbol? So he said, Jesus said, this is, and he's a British guy, and he would say, this is my body. This is my, it's not like my body. It's just, not a symbol of my body. And uh, guys, I didn't have anywhere to go with that. He was right. The, there it is right there on, in the Bible. This is my body. And so, but that statement just stuck with me for a long time. And, and I would say that he kind of planted the seeds that would later help me unpack a, a, a more robust meaning of the words of Jesus. And he taught me when I was a younger man, the word symbol, symbolon, two Greek words, with throw. You see, throw two things together so that when you combine them, the one thing comes to mean the same thing as the other. And he said, this is how bread and wine come to be. You throw them together and they come to mean the body and blood of Jesus. So he gave me some material in sacramentum. He taught, taught me that word, grace and nature come together. So at least I, at that point in my life, I came to believe that bread and wine could be more 
than just bread and wine, but I, I didn't know how that actually happened. So there was no concept of confection or, or consecration, but at least the theological root system began to develop for me back then. Now, that's interesting because mine, interestingly, my story goes like this. What opened me at the beginning, the first, to the idea that the Lord's Supper might be more than purely symbolic was reading John Calvin, uh, reading John Calvin's in Institutes. And this was years and years before I gave any consideration to uh, the real presence of Christ or the Catholic teaching, anything like that. At some point along the way, just in my reading and my learning, uh, the teaching of Calvin on the subject of the Lord's Supper began to intrigue me. Calvin spoke of the Lord's Supper as being a means of grace, which was a phrase that we didn't really use in the Baptist church. It, you know, I okay, I think that preaching is a means of receiving God's grace. Prayer is, but he spoke of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace and as a time when Christ is not merely remembered, he made a point of this, not merely proclaimed, but he said was received as spiritual food. Mm -hmm. He spoke of how in communion we feast, F-E-A-S-T, we feast upon Christ, our Passover lamb. And th this was a new idea from Calvin and the Puritans. I was learning this. Uh, quoting from his Institutes of the Christian Religion, this is how he put it. Now Christ is the only food for our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ, that refreshed by partaking of him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we have reached heavenly immortality. And that's within the context of talking about the Eucharist. Now, of course, Calvin was most eager to emphasize that this was a spiritual feasting he was talking about, not anything like what Catholics believe or even Lutherans or Anglicans. Or of course, they didn't exist at the time. I mean, Catholics did, but the others didn't exist when Calvin was writing. But anyway, why did I go off on that? He wanted to emphasize, I'm talking about a spiritual feasting, not anything like what the Catholics say. But the thing is, I was intrigued, um, Kenny and Matt, I was intrigued by the idea, just the idea that it could be more. And while I knew that there were a number of passages in the New Testament that might, and I mean could be, interpreted as supporting this notion of it being more, John 6 being one of them, but several others, I didn't think that Calvin's view could be proved <laughs> It was this, it was Bible alone in my mind, and I didn't think that Calvin's view could be established necessarily or with any degree of certainty from the text, from the data of Scripture alone. And so I kind of just retained my view that it was purely symbolic, but I was curious about his. Okay, so I was happy to stick basically with the basic Baptist evangelical understanding of the Lord's Supper as expressed, for instance, in the New Hampshire Confession of Faith from 1833, which speaks of the Lord's Supper in which the members of the church, by the sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. Now, as I've mentioned before, and I'll be very quick with this, about seven years into my pastoral ministry, I learned that an old friend of mine that I had known from years back had become Catholic. I listened to his recorded conversion story, and I can still remember, I, I, I wonder if you'll relate to this at all, I can still remember feeling a bit physically ill when he spoke of receiving Christ in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. When I, when I heard that at first, it was sort of like, ah, cannibalism or something kind of weird. And I didn't like the sound of it. And I remember feeling strange hearing it. 
I mean, I knew that Catholics held to a doctrine of the real presence, and I knew basically what that meant, and that the Eastern churches do as well. And the Anglican and Lutherans hold a version of that too. But it was so foreign to me to talk that bluntly about it. And then my old friend said something in that tape that really intrigued me, which I will simply state at this point. He said that the Catholic view of the Eucharist as a sacrificial meal in which bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ and are received in communion as supernatural food, he said this had been the faith of Christianity from the beginning. And it was at that point yes. that my search went into high gear. I began reading the early church fathers and being stunned at how Catholic they sounded. And I'll leave it at that that point for now. Well, mm -hmm. it was a it was very much a journey in, in, in my case, but I remember uh the first time that it really you know, got to me that that there was something going on that I didn't get and that there there was something more to be reflected upon in regard to the Lord's Supper. And it was I actually don't even remember where it was. I don't remember if it was at college or if it was at a local Methodist church. I don't remember where it was. I remember I was around the end of my college years when it happened. I went to church a lot back then, including three chapel services a week. So I don't remember exactly where this happened. But I remember um, there was a communion service, and we did uh, John Wesley's communion service. And there were these things that happened. So in my in my day, we'd bring out like a wooden table that said, this do in remembrance of me. And, you know, the pastor would say about two and a half minutes worth of words. And most of the time would be spent passing the stuff out. Right. But in John Wesley's communion service, there was all this stuff that I was like, what is going on? Because it, it has things like an invitation, a collect, and there's a confession of sin where everybody like confesses their sins publicly. We didn't do that. Just so you know, <laughs> in my church and everybody's like saying like, you know, we've we've all sinned against you. <laughs> right. Uh, then there's this great Thanksgiving in which uh, we said stuff that I'd never said before in church, which is, you know, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks unto the Lord our God. Mm -hmm. It is meet and right that we give him thanks and praise. Then we all said, uh, the, the pastor says stuff like, with all the angels and archangels in the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your name evermore, praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. These are not words that I was used to hearing around mm -hmm. communion. And so right. uh, there's there was, there's more to it. Uh, and as you go through the liturgy of the word stuff here in a minute, Kenny, people are going to be like, oh, I guess Wesley didn't make this stuff up himself. But I just remember thinking, there is right. more going on here. And... <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I do know that I've never, I've never heard this talked about like this. So, yeah. so that was that was certainly it for me, and and so this is, I think, really kind of a point to talk about. So, so what is happening? What is happening mm -hmm. in the Catholic Church when it comes to this part of the service? It's so important uh, to get into that, and uh, so maybe we could work with work through this in a few ways, guys, um, and just. For, for viewers and listeners, we're going to slow down and work through each of these things in successive episodes, but it might be helpful to just give, like we did earlier, a high-level summary of what's going on, maybe a little vocabulary lesson, and then end as we have been doing each week in these episodes with some reflections on worship in the early church, just to kind of go back to what Ken said that this is the way it was being done and understood even from the 
earliest days of the church. But, but first, the parts of the liturgy of the Eucharist depends on um, who's kind of taking you through these, uh, how many they come up with. I'm going to share 10. Uh, someone might say, well, there's not that many, or there's more, or there's less. But this th- just stick with me in terms of the flow here. The, the theological and ritual significance uh, of these will be discussed in more detail in, in the next episodes. But just think of these 10 things as the big pieces of the liturgy of the Eucharist. It all begins in the the ordinary form of the Roman rite, which we celebrate, or the Latin rite, with the presentation of gifts. In our church, in the back of the church, a family or two or three members of the congregation will be uh, given bread and wine and water to walk up to walk up the aisle, the center aisle of the church, to hand to the priest. And at that same time, offerings will be taken from the congregation. These would be our financial offerings. All of this whole package is the presentation of our gifts. The wine and the bread and the water are placed on the altar. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the theological significance of the presentation of the gifts and what that means, but that's where it starts. The congregation brings these gifts to the priest, and they are placed on the altar. Then the canon of the Mass begins, the central part of the Mass, known as the Eucharistic prayer or the anaphora. We'll get to that terminology and theology uh, soon. But here is where a prayer of thanksgiving and consecration is is offered. You'll see, um, it depends on the, the priest, you know, um, how he does it. But the next part is the epiclesis. Uh, this In our church, in the epiclesis, our priest puts his hands together like this, and he holds them over the the bread and the wine and the water, and he prays. It is some nerdy stuff here. Epiclesis uh, is two Greek words. Epi, see now, epidermis, right? This is the outside covering of my body, or upon. Klesis, we've already heard this word, kaleo. It's the same second part of the word as in the word ekklesia, call. What does this mean? The priest asks or he calls, asks the Holy Spirit to come upon. That's what epiclesis means, to come upon the bread and the water and the wine. And that the Holy Spirit may come and sanctify these offerings. And he says that they may become for us the body and blood of Christ. So this is where it happens. And I, in, my, in our Mass, guys, every time I see our Father, Father Rob, do the epiclesis, I like I open my eyes and I look because I'm like, a miracle is happening right now. Like this is, the Lord is answering his prayer. I tell, I, I'll nudge my son, look, look. <laughs> so uh, there you go. So, That's what I do. Uh, so my and son then... <laughs> recently got into altar serving. And, um, you know, this is one yeah. of his favorite parts. Like he's got a job to do here because very often, yes. Um, yes. depending on what's going on, this is the part where where bells ring in the mass, right? Um, the bells will ring. In, in our so, church, bells ring. Absolutely. So this, this is one of the – and you're going to get to another place where they do, but but there are, there are kind of a couple main yes. parts. But this is one, right? The Holy Spirit. Like everybody pay attention. If you were snoozing, man, wake up. Right, because now it's happening exactly, and and this is why 
Yeah, this is why, you know, Catholics get knocked a little bit for the smells and the bells. What are they for? Well, what, you know, what are smells and bells for? To smell, you know, good things. What are bells for? Pay attention. Something really cool is happening. And, and yes, at the, at the point of the epiclesis, the calling of the Holy Spirit to come upon these gifts that have been brought by people for God to transform those. It's like, pay attention. The Holy Spirit is in our midst doing something amazing. And then that's followed by the consecration. This is the part of the Eucharistic prayer during which the priest prays the Lord's actual words of institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. This is my body. He says, you said it, Lord. You said this is my body. You said this is my blood. And through this prayer, I want to stress this here, the, the bread and the wine, which began as bread and wine and water, become, come to be, that's, that's the word, the risen body and blood of Jesus. Now, again, lots to unpack there. And, and I, this might be a good time for me to say this too, guys. I feel like we're not necessarily making an apology or an apologetic for this as much as what we're doing here is proclaiming that we believe this uh, because we, we see it in Scripture and we see it in the, in the faith of the earliest Christians. So it's, there's no apology necessary. This is exactly what happens in the midst of our liturgy. Uh, then there is, now it depends on who you're talking to, how you pronounce this word, but the anamnesis or anamnesis, <laughs> anamnesis, however you want to say it, and the way I remember this word is it's it's related to the word amnesia, but it's the opposite of amnesia. Amnesia is to forget, uh, to have no memory of a thing. But ana, A-N-A, is the prefix R-E in English, to re-remember, to remember. So anamnesis is to recall or remember. And this is the point of the, the Mass in which Jesus is remembered among us, his historical saving deeds in the liturgical action of the church inspires thanksgiving and praise and is made present to us in the mass. Now, after this is the doxology, the giving of praise. This is a, a Christian prayer uh, that, that offers God praise and glory in a special way, especially in a Trinitarian way, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are, remember, we said, are acting in the Mass. They are present and they're with us in the Mass. There's There are liturgical prayers offered here, the Eucharistic prayer, then the doxology, to the Father, remember last time, through the Son, <laughs> in the Holy Spirit. And then we have the, the communion rite itself, the Lord's Prayer, which I love uh, in, in the Mass. Uh, in English, it says, uh, uh, informed by divine teaching, you know, according to the command of Jesus. And then it says, we dare to say, we dare to call God our Father. So we pray the Our Father. Then there's the rite of peace, the fraction of the communion, and then the receiving of, of communion um, by the gathered congregation. And you just think about this too, guys. When I was Pastor Kenny, I wanted to get all this stuff done really fast. Like, okay, let's get that communion passed out, do the devotional while it's being passed out. 
and and then everyone take communion at the same time. Gather everything up. Done seven minutes in and out. Now I got you know plenty of time to preach. In our liturgy, the reception of communion, every single person goes forward one by one and receives that uh, from somebody who is distributing it, most often a priest or a deacon and sometimes extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. But every person has to have this exchange. They're given the, the body and blood of Jesus in this way, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. This is said to them, and they respond with, Amen. In other words, I believe that that's exactly what this is. And then they receive it and they go back to their place. So that's <laughs> as much as it could be a high level summary of what happens in the liturgy of the Eucharist. We remember, or Jesus is remembered among us and present to us and with us. And we eat his body and we drink his blood in our gathering. You know, it's interesting on so many levels. So, I mean, we're going to get into all this stuff at a much, much deeper level. Um, But there is a a point at which we all say amen as a congregation, right? And then there's the point at which we all say amen as individuals. So, um, what's, so there's, there's, of all the sports, I always say that baseball is the most easily compared to to the Catholic faith for a number of reasons, because you win as a team, but everybody's got to stand at the plate as an individual batter, except for the pitchers now that they've incorporated the DH even into the National League. But the idea being that we, after it's proclaimed that this is Christ and held up before the whole congregation, we all say it as a church, right? Uh, then we all got to go say it yes. as individuals <laughs> as we stand in the communion yes. line. And even, exactly. I mean, it's it's just an incredible thing to, to think about how you know, we are body of the body of Christ, but also we are all members of it in this in this moment. It's an incredible thing uh, to witness and to behold. And, and when you're first going to mass and you're trying to see all this, there's no way you're putting all this stuff together because you're just like, what is? It's like no. me when I was seeing that John Wesley service. It's like, what is happening? Right? You just know it's more than meets the eye. <laughs> well, and if your muscles, you know, if you had little measly uh muscles like ours for for how much time it took you know get through communion it's like why are they taking so long come on man we can do, do this? this in six seven minutes yeah no by the way so by the way really when you said different. by the way when you said that people have to go forward one by one uh for those who haven't mm-hmm. been to a mass I, I just want to clarify you don't mean one person and then they sit down, and then another person. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> no, right. We yeah. all stream forward, but we receive one we, by one. As a matter of fact, if and, you go um, to a place that has kneelers, you've got all the people kneeling yeah. in a row, and people just go down the line. That mm-hmm. line empties up, and the next people file in. Um, sure. But yeah, we don't we don't just say, hey, the top five holiest people in here come up. <laughs> you know? And Matt, and Matt, and, and Matt, ask your baseball analogy. I'll have to give that some some time, some meditation. Okay. <laughs> but Reflect yeah, on it deeply. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, I'm back to your 144,000 are the only ones who receive, but, it, but anyway, another subject, Kenny's still rolling on this. So go Kenny, put some handles on this for us. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, you know, we've been trying to do a little, little terminology vocabulary every week. 
you know, next week we're going to start drilling down into the bringing forth of the gifts and so forth and the significance of that. But let me share with those who are watching and with you guys some words that have been helpful to me in terms of how to navigate through all of this. Like to answer the question, well, what in the world is happening for the next 20 minutes, you know, in the Mass during this part of the Mass, 20 or 30 minutes? Okay. In simple terms, guys, here's what's happening. And this is really what's happening in the whole mass. And it's what's happening in our lives as followers of Jesus. Okay. It's, it's, it's brought into, you know, very pristine focus in the mass. But what's happening is that ordinary things, bread, wine, water, are being brought forward. And through the prayer of the church, by the hands of the priest, these ordinary things are being changed into extraordinary things. And that's the high-level description. So at this point, let's unpack that just a little bit. Ordinary, the ordinary things that are brought to the priest for consecration and for communion are earthly stuff. They're the stuff of creation which has been made into ordinary food, bread and wine. And this is why at this point, in the Mass, when the priest begins to uh, prepare these things, he calls them fruit of the earth and the work of human hands, because that's what they are. They begin in the celebration of the Eucharist as simple, everyday, ordinary things. But then something happens. Well, what happens? God's people start praying. The priest starts praying. What happens then? Well, grace comes in. So, The ordinary comes first, then grace, that's the second word, and grace means that God shows up, if I can just use a phrase, or maybe another way of doing this is how my dad used to talk to me when I was a kid. He'd say, by God, except he wasn't doing it like we do it in the Mass. With him, it was more like, you get in there and you clean up your room, or by God, and then he would tell me, you know, that the next thing that was going to happen to me, he'd say, so he's invoking God, and that it is because of God that this next bad thing is going to happen to me. Well, in the Mass, as the church prays, okay, these ordinary things are, by God, <laughs> becoming something else. And I mean that theologically, that God himself is getting involved in our ordinary stuff. They are, as it were, brought up into God's very presence. And maybe another way, God's very presence comes to visit us. Is it one or the other, or maybe both? That's what happens with grace. Grace means that God is giving himself to us and bringing us to himself. And then because of that, just like what happens in our lives when we become Christians, an ordinary guy becomes a child of God. Well, in the Mass, ordinary bread and wine and water become something more than that. There's a transformation of the ordinary into something more, which is really our third word, extraordinary, more than it would otherwise be by its nature. The life of God comes to bear upon the ordinary, and by God, it's changed. (laughs) By God, it's changed, right? Uh, And you, you you start to see this in the biblical story, don't you? You could say it this way, God makes a mud pie, you know, in Genesis, and he breathes into it, and it becomes, it comes to be 
a living soul and God actually points at it and says, there's my image. There's my image in the world. That formerly ordinary dust that I breathed into was transformed into a human, a, 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 a being that's human, that images God. And you can see God doing this over and over in Scripture, transforming ordinary things into extraordinary things by grace. In other words, God giving of himself. And this happens that the ordinary becomes extraordinary as a result of God's grace through sacrifice. And what we mean by that, or the way that we're talking about that, at least in this context, is we mean sacrifice in that God is giving himself fully to us. And we, in the Mass, are giving ourselves fully to God. A, a Protestant way of thinking about this is offering. We are God is offering himself fully to us. We are offering ourselves fully to God in the Mass. Jesus is our mediator, bringing us together. And this, this giving that happens in the Mass, the sacrifice, the offering of God to his people and his people to God through Christ, brings about the the fifth word, and that's the word communion. So we had ordinary, grace, extraordinary, sacrifice, communion. What What's that? Well, the wine and the bread become the place at which God meets with his people again. Guys, the only way to come to God is through Christ. And so the the bread and the wine are the body and blood, soul and divinity. They become the point of communion between God and his people. I'll just pause right there. It's a lot. It's nice a lot. pause. Nice pause. <laughs> well, listen, okay, this thing that you have described using these words, um, what I want to do, I, my last con- contribution to this episode is I want to do what I've done every week, and that is I want to read a bit from the early church fathers that I that I mentioned a while back when I was talking about how I began to read the early fathers, and I was, wow, how Catholic they are, because I want those listening and watching, I want you just to hear what the early church fathers had to say about the Eucharist, and I want you to see how uh, what they say just fits beautifully with this elaborate mm-hmm. description you've given of what we're doing in the Mass and what it means and those great five words you just went through. So listen to some of these. These are the kinds of quotations that began to really challenge me as I read them. Okay, first of all, from the Didache, which some date literally as early as 50 AD. We don't know. It's very early, 50, 60, 70, 80 AD. We don't know, but it's an early document. Assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer the Eucharist. Note, offer the Eucharist. But first make confession Mm -hmm. of your faults so that your sacrifice may be pure. The word sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Anyone who has a difference with this fellow is not to take part until he has been reconciled so as to avoid profaning your sacrifice. For this is the Mm -hmm. offering of which the Lord said, quoting Malachi chapter 1 now, Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of nations. In other words, from maybe, maybe, possibly the earliest post-apostolic document that exists in the world within the Christian faith, from the beginning, he's using the word Eucharist, and he's conceiving of the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. 
as something we mm-hmm. offer, a sacrifice that is offered. Now, just a few decades later, we come to Clement of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, writing in maybe as early as 80 AD. I'll say 90, maybe 100, but it's very early again. And this is what Clement of Rome has to say. He mentions the Eucharist and he says this, Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered the sacrifices. He's dealing with a situation in which some have been removed from their positions and, and, and he's trying to correct the church. Those who have offered the sacrifices, blessed are those presbyters who have finished their course and who have obtained a fruitful and perfect release. Again, the Eucharist spoken of in sacrificial terms. Now we move forward again, just a couple of decades, you guys. We're around 110 AD now, reading the writings of St. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, the seven letters that he wrote while he was on his way to Rome to be fed to the wild beasts in the arena in Rome. Now, Ignatius had been dealing with the docetus, a particular particular heresy that is referred to in John's writings too. In 1 John, he speaks about it. The The docetists were a group who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. They denied the incarnation. They said that Jesus just appeared to be a man. He was really God just you know, appearing, the appearance of being a man. And that's based on the Greek word that is 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 um, taken as docetus here. The, the Greek word that means to seem, to appear. Anyway, denying that this, St. Ignatius points out that they also denied the real presence of Christ. They denied the incarnation, and they denied the real presence. Listen to what he wrote about them. Consider those who are of a different opinion with respect to the grace of Christ which has come upon us, how opposed they are to the will of God. They have no regard for love, no care for the widow or the orphan or the oppressed or the bond or the free or the hungry or the thirsty. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which was offered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. And he's referring to an heretical group that was clearly conceived as being outside the Catholic Church. In that same letter, Ignatius refers to the Eucharist a little bit later as the medicine of immortality. Now, how does that fit with what you've been saying, Matt, about God coming, changing the ordinary into the extraordinary and we meet him there, we commune with him there. He called it the medicine of immortality. A couple more quotations. A few decades later, we come to St. Justin Martyr, now writing around 150 AD. Listen to how he describes the Eucharist. For not as common bread or common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made, I'm thinking about the epiclesis here, I'm thinking about the prayers of consecration, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. Now listen to St. Irenaeus a couple of decades later. He's the bishop of the church in Lyon in France, modern France, the first great biblical theologian really in the history of Christianity. He's writing in the 180s in his book Against Heresies, and this is how he describes the Eucharist. 
just as the bread from the earth, receiving the invocation of God, is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist, consisting of two things, the earthly and the heavenly, so our bodies, receiving the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, but have the hope of resurrection to eternal life. Listen to that. Our bodies receiving the Eucharist, this medicine of immortality, are no longer corruptible, but have the hope of resurrection to eternal life. And just one more, a few decades after that, we come to Tertullian writing around 210 AD and asserting that in the Eucharist, and I quote him now, the flesh feeds on the body and blood of Christ so that the soul likewise may be filled with God. Listen to that one more time. The flesh feeds on the body and blood of Christ that the soul likewise may be filled with God. That's from Tertullian's writing, Resurrection of the Flesh. I hear these, so many years back, I heard these quotations and I noted that it's not like I've just strung together some uh, you know, proof texts. This is the feeling that you get in all of the writings from the early church. This is the theology of the early Christians of the late first century, yeah. second century, and third century. This is the teaching of the Christian faith. And it hit me like a hammer. John Henry Newman's words that if anything is easy to show, it's that the early church simply was not a Protestant church. And I throw it back to you, Kenny. Any final comments today? Yeah. My my final contribution here is something that I've done a couple of times in our exchanges here, guys. And that's, you know, Catholic Kenny here. Here I am. Catholic Kenny wants to go back in time and talk to pre-Catholic Pastor Kenny. And if I could do that today, I'd go back to pre-Catholic Pastor Kenny. And I'd say, pre-Catholic Pastor Kenny, isn't it true that you have a very different view of communion than the earliest Christians. And if you really want to dig down into it, you have a very different view of what's happening here that even, than even what Jesus said in the pages of Scripture. What do you think accounts for that? Why are you, why are you embracing, pre-Catholic Pastor Kenny, <laughs> a theology that's different from both Scripture and the earliest um, extant literature that we can find in the writings of the first Christians. And wouldn't you be better served to rethink the way that you've you've been taught and that you've always thought and that you're passing these things on to your congregation? Because if you'll look, there's more to be seen than you can see. There's more to be understood than you understand. And I think it'd be a great challenge to me. And honestly, because I did that later, you know, I, I wasn't Pastor Kenny anymore, but because I did that later, uh, that's why I became Catholic. I had to look at these things from the perspective of everything that you just read, Ken, and everything that we've talked about so far. So that's what I would add at the end here. Yeah, and I only have Matt, two quick thoughts to, to, to add. And one goes back to the joke we were talking about going up one by one, right, to communion. Well, that's not actually mm -hmm. entirely true. Because uh, almost any Catholic mass, you'll see some people hanging back, right? Maybe because they didn't fast a little bit before uh, church. Maybe because they're in a state of sin. Uh, maybe because they're not Catholic. Mm -hmm. Not everybody goes up. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to hang back if right. they're just going up to get truce and crackers that are assembled. But if it, if it is what yeah. Justin Martyr is saying and what Irenaeus is saying and what Ignatius of Antioch is saying and what St. Paul is saying, if we take Jesus at his words, then it does make sense to hang back if you shouldn't be going up, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. So that's the, first, that's the first part of it. But the second part is that 
uh, and we're going to get into this more, uh, is that there's this illusion that we would have had that said, you can't have a relationship with God through the Mass, when in fact the Mass is sort of the culmination of God's relationship with humankind, because God makes the world, all right? We cultivate the earth, then we put the seeds in that God gave us, he makes them grow, then we harvest them, right? And then we put them together, and through his process of food chemistry, he transforms them into bread and wine. Then we give them back to him and pray, and then he gives them back to us as the flesh and blood of Christ, right? And then we give ourselves to service of him as we head back out into the world. This is the culmination of of like what all mm, of reality wonderful. is in regard to our relationship with Christ. And when you see it that way, you're not thinking dead ritual. Amen. You're thinking like, this yeah. is how we were made from the beginning to be. So that's my little And that's thing. why we say the mm -hmm. the mass is the mass is the representation, the telling of, the mirroring of, the story mm -hmm. of salvation, the biblical mm -hmm. story. And you see it, you just see it in glaring beautiful color when you when you look deeply into the Eucharist. So I'm I'm looking forward guys to unpacking these big pieces into smaller pieces over the next Same couple here. Of weeks together. Yeah, there's a, just a lot to lot to dig into. But uh, hopefully this has caught you up a little bit. Uh, if you want to go back and see some of the ep other episodes, if for some reason you stumbled upon this and you're like, what are these guys talking about? What is their deal? You can go find uh, where we've been to this point by going to chnetwork.org. Find this uh, this series, the previous episodes in this series, but also other series we've done that share our perspective as uh, evangelical Christians who became Catholic. But uh, also, if you want to join our online community and connect with us, uh, we're in there. Um, having conversations and so are a whole bunch of other people who are at various stages of, of, of these inquiries community.chnetwork.org for that and we are coming up on the end of the year and our goal is to make as much stuff as free as possible to anybody who comes with questions and the only way that we've been able to do that is because some people who appreciate some of these things and have been helped by us before um, have paid it forward so that we can continue to do these kinds of things and if like I say you want to join them in that effort, go to chnetwork.org slash donate, especially here at the end of the year. A uh, real important time for us to, to round that corner into the new year. Well, mm -hmm. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, Kenny Burchard, thank you for another great week. Talk to you next time around. We shall see you. God bless. Bye-bye.